0: All right, guys, we're getting to the end of March, which is also the end of our survey. We have a minimum number of responses we're shooting for, and I don't know how close we are to the goal, but I know we haven't reached it because I haven't gotten the email telling us we have. If you can go to podcast.study and leave some anonymous information about yourself, it will help us attract sponsors. And sponsors help us replace other income so that we can focus on the podcast which means there is a direct line between sponsors and us producing more content. Again, that's podcast.study. Thank you.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Insight. I'm Ali, and with me, as per usual, is Charlie. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. Uh, We're having a lot of rain at the moment, and I love a big thunderstorm and the smell of rain and all the green afterwards, so I'm in my element at the moment. And this week, we thought that since this is a pretty big case that involves a court trial, who else would be better to help us than the host of a podcast, which, to be fair, Charlie and I are literally
2: obsessed with. Welcome Gillian from Court Junkie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm really excited to be here. Like embarrassingly excited to be a part (laughs) of this podcast with you ladies. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah,
0: we're really glad you could come and join us today.
2: Yeah, no, this is great. And it is a fascinating case as well. Very sad and tragic, but fascinating as well.
1: This week is a case from Australia, and it's one from my hometown of Newcastle. Kathleen Forbig was convicted of the murder of her four children, one by one, in the 10-year period. And this is a controversial case, as each of her children were found by their mother in similar circumstances, not breathing, in their beds while they were asleep. This is a case that is considered Australia's worst convicted female serial killer. For those who are interested in learning more, there is a great book called When the Bow Breaks by Matthew Benz, I will put the links up on our website in the show notes. Also in this episode, I'll read excerpts from Kathleen's diary, which is one of the main pieces of evidence for the prosecution in the trial against her. We won't include all the diary entries, but I will attempt to post them on our website as a timeline of sorts after this episode is released. And before we begin, this is a listener suggestion from Gal, so thank you Gal. Kathleen Megan Donovan was born June 14, 1967 in Sydney, Australia, to parents Thomas Britton and Kathleen Donovan. When Kathleen was just 18 months old, due to a significant event that we'll talk about in a moment, Kathleen was made an award of the state. She was then placed in the care of her aunt and uncle for a time before being removed from their care and placed in a group children's home. When Kathleen was three years old, she was fostered by Neville and Deirdre Marlborough. And this is the family that she will stay with for the rest of her adolescence. They had a daughter of their own still at home, 15-year-old Lee, who becomes almost like a second mother to Kathleen. Their other children had already grown up and moved out of home, as children have that unfortunate habit of doing. And according to her foster mother, Deirdre, Kathleen grew up to be a somewhat normal teenager. Her foster family wasn't aware of Kathleen's past when they took her in, and Kathleen herself wasn't aware until her late teens. And she didn't know the exact details of what happened until her 30s. And this was mainly to protect Kathleen from the horrific details of what really happened.
0: Kathleen's father, Thomas Britton, was known to be an aggressive man. He particularly took out his anger on women. But he wasn't just a domestic batterer, though he certainly was that. He had a history of violent behavior in nearly every aspect of his life. He had lost jobs in the past. You know, once because he tried to choke a coworker, another job, he reportedly hit a coworker in the face with a seven pound hammer. After this, he was employed as a hitman and a debt collector for underworld figures. Basically, when people couldn't pay their debts for drugs or what have you, Britton would come in behind and rough them up. Almost like from a mob movie, he would just he would break their legs or kneecap them. In 1952, Britton slashed the throat of his first wife and the mother of his son, Margaret Cope. Thankfully, she survived that attack Britton, of course, went to jail for this crime, but I'm not even going to ask you guys to guess his sentence because you would never guess it. He was sentenced to eight months for inflicting grievous bodily harm. He slashed someone in the throat and he got eight months. In 1965, Britain met Kathleen Donovan and they had their daughter, also named Kathleen, two years later. But for the sake of not confusing everyone here, including ourselves, we'll refer to Kathleen the mother by her surname Donovan. So Britton and Donovan had a violent relationship. Both were heavy drinkers and gamblers. Plus, Britton didn't seem to know how to have a non-violent relationship with anyone, wives, partners, co-workers. It won't surprise anyone that this was a violent home. A friend later said that Donovan told her that every morning Britain would hold a knife to her throat and ask, will I or won't I? In addition to domestic violence, there were accusations that baby Kathleen was being flat out neglected by both her mother and father. In November of 1968, Donovan walked out on Britain, tired of the abuse. He claimed they were at a family picnic where he was complaining about her drinking in front of the child And she grabbed her bag and left. She left both her husband and her baby. Britton eventually tracked Donovan down. And at this stage, just to give you an idea, baby Kathleen was about 18 months old. And she was starting to miss her mother, according to her father. I mean, Britton wasn't exactly the nurturing type. And there was almost surely an element of coercive control involved in his desire to find Donovan. Abusers don't often shrug and walk away from relationships.
1: And I would say that baby Kathleen would be getting in the way of his job as a mob hitman.
0: Right. Between his job and also his drinking at the bar, having a baby at home by himself was not really helping. Britton found Donovan and tried to convince her to come home and she refused. He claimed that she didn't want the baby and that's why she didn't want to come home. Donovan's friends tell a very different story. They said she was trying to get money together, she had a bank account, she was putting deposits into, so that she could take Kathleen back and get away from Britain entirely. But regardless of her long term plans, in this moment she refused to come home and Britain slapped her. He then placed the baby in a home of a friend. A few days later, a similar confrontation occurred. Britton followed Donovan, trying to get her to return home. She refused, and this time he punched her in the face. And all of this is leading up to December 8th, 1968. Donovan had left on November 24th, according to Britton, so we're talking two weeks. And he had already confronted her violently two times. Britton spent the night drinking heavily, and he went to where Donovan was living and had an argument with her, right out in the street he reportedly called her a slut said he was going to stick a knife in her ribs and then that's exactly what he did he stabbed her 24 times with a 25 centimeter or almost 10 inch long carving knife and she died in the street in his arms britain never left the scene he didn't try to flee he was arrested tried found guilty of murder on may 26 1969 he was sentenced to life imprisonment. He served 14 years of that sentence, but he wasn't released back in Australia. He was actually a Welsh immigrant, and so he was deported back to Wales. And he got home to Wales. He didn't tell his family back there what had happened or about his daughter. And in February 1999, at the age of 75, he died. And like Ali said... Kathleen didn't learn about this until she was 32 years old, and she has no conscious memory of the events since she was only a year and a half old. So what effect does this have on the events to come? We'll discuss some of that later.
2: So Kathleen met Craig Fulbig in 1985 when she was 18 years old and working as a waitress at a local Indian restaurant. Craig was the exciting, cooler, older man. He was six years older than her, and he was into cars. They had somewhat of a whirlwind romance. They moved in together within about a year of dating, and then they got engaged not long after that. So 25-year-old Craig and 20-year-old Kathleen were married in August of 1987, and they bought a house in a working-class suburb of Newcastle in Mayfield and they pretty much settled into married life. Craig was making good money as a car valuer, and they wanted to have children as soon as they possibly could. And they didn't have to wait long. Kathleen was pregnant nine months after they were married, and their first baby, a boy named Caleb Gibson Fulbig, was born on February 1st, 1989. And as is normally the way with first births, the labor was longer, But Caleb was born healthy and without any noticeable problems. But due to the difficult birth, Kathleen stayed in the hospital for five days. And during this time, it was discovered that Caleb had difficulty breathing through his nose when he was feeding. So he would drink for a little while, break to take a couple of breaths, and then start all over again. And by the time Kathleen and Caleb left the hospital, though, Doctors weren't concerned, as it was improving and it didn't really seem to affect or distress the baby.
1: Now, the book makes a big deal about Kathleen's inability or disinterest in breastfeeding, as if that means something or proves what kind of mother she was. Now, as a mother who struggled with breastfeeding myself and, look, all my kids were bottle-fed, it really doesn't matter. Now, this book was written in 2005, and I had my first baby in a public hospital in Newcastle in 2009. I don't hold anything against this book for making these somewhat ridiculous statements, and that's because that was the way that people felt at the time. I was made feel like a horrible mother for not breastfeeding my first child. But by the time I had my second child, almost three years later, this time in a private hospital, I was told, happy mother, happy baby. And that's exactly the way it should be. Yes, of course, breast is best, but you are no less of a mother for choosing the alternative if you have to. So I don't believe that this had any indication of what kind of mother that Kathleen was.
0: I breastfed all of my children and I'm very pro-breastfeeding, but I also know it's not that easy. Especially if you're a first baby, it's so hard to get started, and if he's having problems where he's having to pull off every few minutes, it, that's just incredibly frustrating. I I did not like that sly judgment in there at all about her quote-unquote willingness to breastfeed. Plus, it's it's her body. She doesn't have to breastfeed if she doesn't want to.
1: So due to Caleb's feeding problems, he was referred to a child development specialist in Newcastle, uh, Dr. Barry Springthorpe. When Caleb was two weeks old, Dr. Springthorpe sees the four bigs and he finds the baby's chest sinks in when he breathes, and this is generally caused by a floppy larynx. So what all this means is when the baby breathes heavier than normal, it results in noisy breathing. That's it. It doesn't really affect the baby sleeping or feeding. And by the time Caleb would be one year old, the problem would be gone. Now, Dr. Springthorpe is also an expert in the field of child abuse. He created an awareness group and he taught how to pick up on signs of suspected child abuse around the world. Call it occupational hazard, but Dr. Springthorpe would check all of his patients for signs of abuse. He later reports there were no signs of abuse on two-week-old Caleb. Two days after this appointment on February 20, Kathleen and Craig take Caleb over to Craig's brother John's house for a visit and they spend the day there. The family get home about eight o'clock. Kathleen changes Caleb into his pyjamas, gives him his bottle, which he drinks without any problems, and puts him to bed in his bassinet in his own room, which is separate to Kathleen and Craig's room. They both check on Caleb before they go to bed at 10.30, and they later report him to be sleeping soundly.
0: Craig was a heavy sleeper, and I think we all know people like this. The house could fall down around him, and he would just keep sleeping through it. That meant Kathleen was the one who would get up during the night, And she was feeding Caleb on demand, so that would be every three to four hours. In part due to Caleb's breathing problems, these feedings took at least 30 minutes. I mean, I've had babies without breathing issues where these feedings took forever, so it could have been a combination of things. But if he can only drink a little at a time, then he has to take some breaths. You know, this could go on a while. So Kathleen is tired. She's cranky. She's sleep deprived. She's getting two to three hours of sleep in a row at night then she has to get up and attentively feed her small son for 30 minutes because he needed to stop eating for his breathing issues it's not like she could feed him and zone out as some of us who've had babies up in the middle of the night are used to that zoning out while you're feeding them she couldn't because of his breathing issues
1: and she's hormonal as well and a first mother so you don't they you don't really know what to expect or what's right and what's wrong it's stressful at the best of times
0: This particular night was no different than their usual routine. Kathleen got up during the night, fed and burped Caleb, and put him back into his bassinet to sleep. Kathleen said that when she went back to bed, Caleb was sleeping soundly and without any difficulty. Kathleen kept detailed diaries of Caleb's care. Okay, Kathleen kept detailed diaries, period. But in this period of her life, they were mostly about Caleb's care. And I mean, we're talking down, she was jotting down almost to the half hour from the time Caleb was born, what was going on. So because of this, we know it was 2 a.m. when he went to sleep, because she writes this down exactly in her diary. Kathleen went back to sleep, but she isn't sure for how long. But when she woke up, kind of suddenly, she had a feeling that she had to go check the house and make sure everything was all right. Kathleen said that she could normally hear Caleb breathing from his bedroom, but she couldn't hear this expected sound. She went into his room without turning on the light. And, I mean, because you know you do not want to wake a sleeping baby. And she did something that I did a whole bunch of times when my kids were babies, and I'm sure Allie did too. And, honestly, I'll still occasionally do it with my toddler, who's way too old to be concerned about SIDS. She put a hand on his chest to feel him breathe and realized she couldn't. His chest just wasn't moving. Kathleen screamed out for Craig It took three tries to wake him up. She grabbed the baby out of his bassinet and turned on the light. Craig's recollection of this night was a little different. He remembers being woken up by Kathleen screaming. He said he went into Caleb's room and Kathleen was not holding Caleb, as she claimed. She was standing next to the bassinet with Caleb lying in it. Craig claimed he was the one who picked the baby up and put his face up to the baby's. Caleb's lips were blue, his eyes were closed, he wasn't breathing, but he was warm to the touch. He screamed at Kathleen to call an ambulance and he started CPR. Or, more accurately, he started what he thought was CPR from what he had seen on television because he hadn't actually taken
2: a CPR class before. The ambulance arrives at the Folbigs' home at about 3 a.m. The paramedics take over from Craig and continue the CPR. But 39 minutes later, they pronounce 19-day-old Caleb Gibson Fulbig dead. An autopsy is later conducted, and it is determined that the floppy larynx did not cause Caleb's death and that the cause of death was officially Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Now, according to Craig, it didn't take long for Kathleen to go back to her normal, everyday life after Caleb's death, She went back to the gym and went back to socializing with her friends. It took Craig a little bit longer to move on, but even so, they eventually decided to talk to their doctor, who told them that it was fine to have another baby and that the likelihood of SIDS happening twice in one family would be extremely rare. So they decided to have another baby, but they were cautious this time and took every step they could to lower the risk factors associated with SIDS.
1: Now, sudden infant death syndrome isn't something that was well known back in the 1990s in Australia. For those who don't know, SIDS, which you may also hear called as cot death or crib death, it's exactly as the name suggests. It's the sudden and unexplained death of a child generally less than one years old. But the most common danger period, I guess you can call it, is from two to four months of age. This is thought to be because the infant doesn't have the capacity yet to wake up if their breathing is impaired. SIDS usually occurs during sleep and generally between the hours of midnight and 9am. There is no noise and no signs of a struggle, so there are no warning signs for the parent. It's not known yet why SIDS occurs. Over the years of research, there are a few things you can do to lessen the risk factors and the four bigs took all of this into consideration before having another child. For example, place your baby on its back to sleep with no loose bedding or clothing because a child less than one does not have the understanding to remove a blanket from their face or turn their head away from the mattress if they're sleeping on their stomach. Make sure your baby is sleeping in a relatively cool sleeping environment. Overheating has been linked to SIDS. And exposure to tobacco smoke, which is thought to cause problems with the development of the baby's lungs. Craig was a smoker and he quit just for the safety of a potential growing baby. But of course you can do all of this and SIDS can still happen. Which I guess why it's great that there is continuing research into SIDS. And because of this research, the incidence of SIDS is decreasing. Good old Wikipedia tells me that global deaths attributed to SIDS went down to 22,000 in 1990 to 15,000 in 2003. In Australia, we have the Red Nose Foundation and there are fabulous fact sheets and resources for each stage from pre-pregnancy to I think it goes all the way up to five years old. And it talks about how to create a safe sleeping environment for your child. Even if you're not in Australia, it's still worth a read, especially if you are a parent or planning to be a parent. I'll put the links on our website and Facebook page, but it's rednose.com.au.
0: Kathleen became pregnant right away and... After a quick labor, she had another beautiful and healthy baby boy, and they named him Patrick Allen David Folbig, and he was born on June third, nineteen ninety. Both parents were ecstatic at getting the opportunity to be parents again. That's at least publicly what was being put out there. Kathleen's diaries, which will become increasingly more important part of the story, show someone who was really struggling. She wrote about whether she was going to be able to cope with being a mother again, whether she was going to get, quote, stressed out like last time. If you remember with Caleb, she was the full-time day and night parent. Craig loved his son, no doubts there, but much of his day-to-day, and particularly night-to-night care, was entirely on Kathleen. She even wrote that she, quote, often regrets having children, because of how it changed her and that she didn't handle the change well. This time around, however, Craig quit his job to stay home and help with Patrick. But Patrick was just overall a less needy baby than Caleb was. He fed well, he slept well. He initially had no medical problems. But again... Like with Caleb, I mean, Craig would still sleep all night and sleep through any time the baby cried. And Kathleen would get up and feed the baby all throughout the night. He was in a different room than they had Caleb in. They had renovated a room so that Patrick could have a new room removed from the room that Caleb had been in. Getting up with Patrick, though, it wasn't that same constant demand it had been with Caleb. By the time Patrick was three months old, he was only waking once during the night for a feed at about midnight or 1 a.m., and then he would sleep on through to 6 in the morning. Everything seemed to be going well. Kathleen had settled back into motherhood without any problems that anyone could see on the surface, and Patrick was thriving, and Craig decided to go ahead and go
2: back to work. On Wednesday, October seventeenth, 1990, Craig comes home from work after his third day at his new job. Kathleen puts Patrick's pajamas on him and puts him to bed for the night at about 8.30 p.m. Kathleen and Craig go to bed about two hours later, and Craig would later say that Patrick was sleeping soundly. Kathleen gets up and gives Patrick his usual midnight or 1 a.m. feeding, and then she returns to bed. She said that there was nothing out of the ordinary that occurred during this feeding and that Patrick had gone back to sleep without any issues. So Kathleen then goes back to bed and, just like with Caleb, she wakes back up not long afterwards to use the bathroom. Now she has to walk past Patrick's room to get to the bathroom, so she decides to check on him. Kathleen later reports that she had heard what sounded like Patrick struggling to breathe. Craig is awoken by Kathleen screaming, so he runs into Patrick's room and he sees Kathleen standing next to the cot and Patrick lying on his back with his eyes closed, like he was asleep. Craig tells Kathleen to call the ambulance and he picks up Patrick. Craig feels the baby barely breathing. And he was still pink and warm to the touch. So Craig again attempts to do CPR. Even though, after what had happened with Caleb, Craig and Kathleen did not undertake any proper CPR training. So again, Craig was only going off of what he had seen on TV. The ambulance responds immediately. And by the time they arrive, Patrick is going into respiratory distress. He was obviously desperately trying to get that oxygen back into his body, but with a decreasing level of consciousness, this was something that he was failing at. The paramedics administered oxygen therapy, and this had a positive effect right away. His condition started to improve, and blood tests showed that he had oxygen in his bloodstream. Once he was stabilised, Patrick was
1: examined and nothing conclusively showed why he had stopped breathing. They did chest x-rays and that came back normal. He was developing like any other typical four-month-old baby boy. He didn't have a bottle or anything else in bed with him, so he couldn't have choked on something. The only thing out of the ordinary was a high level of glucose in Patrick's urine. And this only generally occurs in diabetics, but Patrick wasn't a diabetic. According to Dr. Google, this also could be due to a urinary tract infection. But regardless, it should not have resulted in Patrick stopping breathing. Next was Patrick's CT scans, which initially came back normal. However, the following night, while they were still in hospital, he had a seizure. Additional CT scans showed that due to his lack of oxygen to his brain, his brain was essentially short-circuiting, making him now an epileptic. Now, why this happened, it had doctors confused. The family had no genetic history of epilepsy or any other neurological abnormalities. And none of the tests Patrick was given showed any medical reason of why this was happening. So, after being given specific instructions on how to care for Patrick's new condition and a prescription for a powerful barbiturate to control the baby's seizures, Patrick was discharged from hospital 12 days later on October 29, 1990.
0: The following week, they took Patrick in for a follow-up checkup from his hospitalization and it was revealed that Patrick was also blind from whatever incident happened that caused his seizure and his and his trouble breathing for a mother who was already struggling these additional pressures were really taking their toll on Kathleen she was becoming more easily frustrated she was losing her temper both at Craig and at the baby and all of this was putting an enormous strain on Kathleen and Craig's marriage But despite Patrick's epilepsy and his sight problems, he was meeting his milestones. On February 13th, 1991, the full bigs day started like any other day. They got up at 6 a.m. Patrick was eight months old at this point, and he was eating solid food. And, you know, this is that point where they're starting to become less needy overall. They're able to sit up and play a little bit. And a lot of the pressure of the day-to-day care you know, it alleviates a little bit in this point from the, those newborn days. Craig kissed his family goodbye and he left for work at 7 30. Again, when he left, nothing was out of the ordinary. It seemed like a very typical day. At this stage, Patrick had moved into Caleb's old room and he was having a morning nap. Kathleen put him down and as she usually did, she went outside to hang out the washing because she knew he'd sleep for about half an hour, gave her an pretty much just enough time to get some housework done. After Kathleen finished with the laundry, she checked on Patrick when she came in and something didn't look right when she looked in. And she later reported that it was that Patrick was lying on his back and he never slept on his back. He always slept and stayed on his side, immediately concerned that he was having another seizure she rushed over, but she noticed this time that it wasn't a seizure. He was actually just not breathing at all.
2: Craig's sister, Carol it was a nurse who lived close by. She had been a big support for the family since Patrick's first seizure. So after Kathleen calls the ambulance and Craig, she contacts Carol. Carol is the first person to get to the house, with Craig arriving minutes later. Craig picks up Patrick and again... Like the last time, and like that time with Caleb, he's floppy and warm, but has turned blue. Craig commences CPR in vain, but it is too late. Little nine-month-old Patrick Allen David Fulbig has died. An autopsy showed that he was a well-nourished baby, and there were no blocked airways. There was some scarring and damage to his brain, but that was due to the incident that resulted in his epilepsy. And aside from that, the coroner could not find any apparent reason for Patrick's death. So the cause of death was recorded as asphyxia or suffocation caused by an epileptic fit that he wasn't able to recover from.
1: Now Craig really struggled with losing what was two children in almost exactly two years. Craig refused to leave the house and he lost his job. He was struggling, which is understandable, Kathleen, on the other hand, handled her grief differently. Three or four months after Patrick's funeral, she started a new job and was back at the gym and going out with her friends. And this significant difference in how they handled losing Patrick, it caused a major rift in their relationship. But then they moved houses and Craig started to go out more with Kathleen, less because he felt like it and more because he just wanted to be with her. Craig even started working again, and then Kathleen told Craig she wanted another baby. Now, Craig was adamant against this. Obviously, he was scared of losing another baby, and didn't want to risk it all happening again. But Kathleen gives him an ultimatum. Either they have another baby, or the marriage is over. So Kathleen gives Craig a week to change his mind, and eventually he does do that, on one condition – they talked to some SIDS experts.
0: Again, Kathleen got pregnant right away. And on October 14th, 1992, Kathleen gave birth to a healthy baby girl. They named her Sarah Kathleen Fulbig. The SIDS organization loaned Craig and Kathleen a sleep apnea blanket. The way these blankets work is that they sound an alarm if they don't detect movement after a certain amount of time. But this isn't a sure thing. I... I know my babies have been in a really deep sleep where you can hardly tell that their chest is rising and falling. I mean, that's why I would put my hand on them to check. But this kind of deep sleep would set the alarm off. Or if Sarah stretched and rolled over into a new position and the blanket couldn't detect where she was, the alarm would go off. Craig slept through these alarms, which I don't understand (laughs) how. I'm not a heavy sleeper, so I do not understand this, but he slept right on through these alarms and Kathleen was the one being woken up more than anyone else, even more than the baby would have woken her up otherwise.
1: When we had our first child, I was extremely paranoid about SIDS and we bought a monitor that went under the mattress and the alarm is ridiculously loud. I don't understand how anyone can sleep through
0: it. Sleep-wise, Sarah wasn't the consistent sleeper like the boys were. She would catnap and then wake up after 15 or 20 minutes. If she was sleeping in her parents' bed, this would stretch to more like three hours. But this didn't improve. She wasn't sleeping longer stretches as she got bigger like we all expect and, you know, really, really hope it will when we do have babies who are poor sleepers. And Sarah's sleep patterns were another reason for Craig and Kathleen to fight. Craig would get home from work, and Sarah would get excited, as kids do. And they would chase each other around, with Sarah crawling around as fast as she could and getting all riled up. Now, Kathleen had a fairly strict bedtime for Sarah. And thanks to this activity, Sarah was often overstimulated when Kathleen was ready to get her in bed. Knowing she had a long night of little sleep ahead of her, while Craig slept perfectly fine, bitterness and anger crept in, and it fueled more than a few fights. When Sarah was two months old, Kathleen started working on the weekends for a retail baby shop. Craig had no issue with this. He saw that she was with Sarah all week, and having something outside of the home was good for her. When Kathleen was working, Sarah would go stay with Craig's sister, Carol,
2: and her family. On August 29th, 1993, Craig and Kathleen take 10-month-old Sarah out for the day. Sarah had started to stand and was at that stage where she was super curious and interested in the world around her. And then that night, they get home, and they have a typical evening— They have dinner together and go through the whole bath and bedtime ritual, but it had been a long day and Kathleen was tired. She was mad at Craig because he wasn't helping her get Sarah ready for bed. Sarah slept in Craig and Kathleen's room in a single bed at the end of their bed. They had also recently stopped using the sleep apnea blanket, which actually isn't that strange. It's only recommended that you use that blanket until six months of age, but the Fulbigs used it for an additional three months at Craig's insistence. But on this particular night, Sarah was overtired. It was a long day for a 10-month-old. And she also had a little bit of a runny nose, so she was crying and whining. Craig later reported that he could hear Kathleen patting and comforting Sarah, but then suddenly he hears her doing what he calls growling. It concerns him enough to go see what's happening, and here's what he sees. Kathleen is on the bed with Sarah pinned to her in a one-armed bear hug. With her other arm, she was not so gently patting Sarah on the bottom. Craig tells Kathleen to calm down. She tells him to mind his own business and a yelling match then ensues. Allegedly, Kathleen then throws Sarah at Craig and storms off back to their bedroom. Now thankfully, Craig catches his daughter and he cuddles her until she falls asleep. And it's about 11 p.m. by this time. So Craig puts Sarah to bed and gets into bed himself where Kathleen is already sleeping. A few hours later, Craig wakes up again. He looks at his alarm clock next to his bed and he sees that it's 10 minutes past 1 a.m. He notices that neither Kathleen nor Sarah are in their beds, but he could see a light coming from the hallway. So he assumes that Kathleen is tending to Sarah again, maybe changing her diaper or giving her a drink. There could be a number of reasons why they would be in another room. And so Craig just goes back to sleep. Now,
1: Kathleen's story differs to this. She claims she got up to use the bathroom, looks down on Sarah when she walks past. When she returns to the bedroom, Sarah hasn't moved, which is strange. You see, Sarah is a boisterous sleeper, and she would toss and turn in her sleep. So much so that Kathleen and Craig put pillows around her bed and just in case she fell out. Kathleen goes over to Sarah to make sure she isn't cold or anything because her blankets had gone to the bottom of her bed. And that's when she realises Sarah isn't breathing. The next thing Craig remembers is Kathleen screaming out to him and the light in their bedroom has been turned on. Craig gets out of bed and looks down at Sarah, who is lying in bed on her back, stretched out, which Craig later reports that she never sleeps in that position. He races over to her, picks her up, and notices that she is floppy and still warm. He looks at the same alarm clock he looked at earlier, and it's 1.34am, only 24 minutes after he last looked. Kathleen is now in the hallway outside the bedroom. She's screaming and crying uncontrollably, sitting on the floor. Craig is screaming out to her to call the ambulance while he starts CPR. Now we all know his previous efforts were based on what he had read and what he had seen on TV, and this time was no different. Despite being in this situation twice before, Craig and Kathleen never received any formal CPR training. The ambulance arrives at the house in just six minutes. They administer cardiac drugs directly into the little girl's legs in the efforts to revive her. However, Sarah doesn't respond to the drugs or the continuing CPR, and she's pronounced dead at the scene.
0: Autopsy results determine Sarah's cause of death not to be suspicious. Like her brothers, she was well-nourished, and she showed no obvious signs of abuse. She did have two tiny puncture marks on her face, just below her lower lip, and a scratch on her arm. At the time, these were believed that they could have been caused by the resuscitation efforts. And it was also noted in the autopsy report that Sarah's uvula, that's dangly bit in the back of your throat, hers was dislodged. This was believed to have happened during the autopsy process. All other tests showed no obvious cause of death, and ultimately... They attributed Sarah's death to Sudden Infant Death Syndrome.
2: After Sarah's death, Craig tries to talk to Kathleen about what happened. He wants to know why Sarah wasn't in her bed when Kathleen says that she was. But Kathleen refuses to talk about it. And in fact, she doesn't want to talk about any of their children. And not only that, but she doesn't want their names mentioned ever again. In 1995, two years after Sarah's death, Kathleen gives Craig a six-page handwritten letter. And in this letter, she demands that Craig go see a grief counselor, or their relationship is over. The couple had moved several times over this two-year period, and Kathleen had resumed her life. She was working and going out with friends, while Craig would spend the majority of his time alone in the garage, Rebuilding cars. Now before Kathleen gave Craig this letter, the couple had already split up and then reconciled a number of times because of Craig's grief. And at the point when she gave this letter to Craig, they were going through one of their periods of separation. But Craig was desperate to save the marriage. And, as we'll see repeated later on, he was willing to do anything for Kathleen. And so he agreed to see a grief counselor. And then they again reconciled. Everything was going fine until May, 1996, when Kathleen tells Craig that she wants to have another baby. Again, Craig flat out says no, and he tells her that he doesn't want to talk about it. But Kathleen eventually talks him into it. She says that they are more mature now and that they have more patience. They speak to specialists in sleep investigation, which leaves Craig more confident that this time around, it'll be different. In June of 1996, Kathleen writes about deciding to have another baby. She writes in her diary, I'm ready this time and I know I'll
1: have help and support this time. When I think I'm going to lose control like last time, I'll just hand the baby over to someone else. I've learned my lesson this
2: time. And another diary entry, written about Sarah's death, in August of 1996, read, I always believe there
1: is more going on than just human nature. I seem content now because I now know that even though I'm responsible, it's all right.
2: And then, not long before she becomes pregnant with her fourth child, Kathleen writes in her diary, I would like to make all my mistakes and terrible thinking
1: be corrected and mean something though. Obviously, I'm my father's daughter. I think losing my temper stage and being frustrated with everything has passed. I now just let things happen and go with the flow, an attitude I should have had with all of my children.
0: Kathleen became pregnant again in November of 1996. The pregnancy is an easy one and there were no complications, and they found out they were having another daughter. However, Kathleen had some anxiety and concerns that she kept to herself during this time and only confided to her diary. When she was about two months pregnant, she wrote,
1: I'm going to call for help this time and not attempt to do everything myself anymore. I know that was the main reason for all my stress before, and stress made me do terrible things. What scares me most will be when I'm alone with the baby.
0: And then later in her pregnancy, Kathleen wrote,
1: Hopefully preparing myself will mean the end of my dark mood, or at least the ability to see it coming and say to him or someone, Hey, help. I'm getting overwhelmed here. Help me out. That will be the key to this baby's survival. This time I'm positive, with support from friends and family and Craig, this time everything will work out fine. With the other three, I never bothered to think of school and teenage years, maybe because I always knew they'd never get there. But this one, I see myself taking her to school and Craig helping her with her homework. That's if God or that elusive power doesn't take them from me once they are older to punish me. I'm trying to do this right.
0: And in the early morning hours of August 7, 1997, Kathleen gave birth to her fourth child, Laura Elizabeth Folbig. Laura was healthy and beautiful and seemingly the answer to her parents' hopes and dreams. When Laura was just over a week old, the family drove down to Sydney to stay overnight to have her tested for any possible illness or abnormalities. Craig and Kathleen were taught the correct way to administer CPR this time. Laura was fitted to an electronic chorometrics monitor. Basically this monitor records and measures the breathing and the heartbeat of the child. It would sound an alarm if there was a cessation of breathing or changes in the regularity of the baby's heartbeat. The machine also recorded periodic breathing, times when the monitor was turned on or off and how many hours it was used during the day. Craig and Kathleen were shown how to use the monitor and how to respond to the baby in the event of the alarm going off by gently touching her so that they didn't wake her, but they could check to see if she responded to their touch. The detail of every alarm had to be written on the daily diary sheet, and the data from all of this would be downloaded weekly and then monthly and sent to the hospital to monitor. The battery of tests carried out on Laura during the hospital stay All came back with the same response. She was healthy. She was diagnosed with central apnea, which is basically the brain not always signaling the muscles to breathe. It's the most common type of apnea in a full-term baby. But her apnea was mild, and they didn't think it would be an issue. It rarely causes long-term effects, and doctors were sure that Laura, like most babies, would outgrow it. The hospital made some notes in Laura's file about Kathleen. They noted that Kathleen did not act, in the same way that other parents who had lost a baby to SIDS typically acted, and we all know that people respond differently, but in this case, it was almost as though Kathleen was purposely detaching. That could be expected if she was scared of losing another child and going through that pain again. What stood out, however, was that she wasn't that interested in watching the doctors with Laura. Most Parents who've lost a baby to SIDS are almost overly attentive to what the doctors and nurses are doing and are searching for that reassurance. Kathleen and Craig both took a lot of cigarette breaks during the short hospital stay, but the file notes that Craig's reaction otherwise was the complete opposite. He was terrified, and like they expected, he was the one constantly asking the doctors questions and making sure Laura was healthy and pushing to find out what else they could do to protect her from what had happened to the other kids.
2: Back at home, it was the same routine as with Caleb, Patrick, and Sarah, where Craig would be a very hands-on dad during the day, and Kathleen was left with the sole responsibility during the night. Laura slept in a bassinet next to her parents' bed. Due to the monitor, she had electrodes always strapped to her body, with the wire left dangling, so that it could be plugged into the machine whenever she slept, regardless of how long the sleep lasted. Kathleen wrote about her feelings, about the new baby, and about the struggles adjusting to the monitor in her diary, 18 days after Laura was born.
1: Scary feelings. I realize I actually love her and have bonded with her, wish to protect her. Maternal instinct is what it's called. I now know I never had it with the others. Monitor is a good idea. Nothing can happen without the monitor knowing. And since I'm not game enough to not plug it in because they'll want to know why I haven't, everything will be fine this time.
2: By the time Laura was six weeks old, however, Kathleen had stopped plugging it in during the day. The nurse monitoring the data would later report that in the course of the next month, The only time it was used during the day coincided with Craig's holidays from work or his weekends at home. And this was a cause of conflict between Craig and Kathleen. So much so, Craig wrote a letter to the hospital stating his concerns with Kathleen's lax attitude about the monitor. Kathleen did seem to love her baby, though, and as she said in her earlier diary entry, the two were close. She wrote in her diary on October 25th, 1997, when Laura was almost three months old.
1: I look at videos of Sarah, but I have to be honest and I cherish Laura more. Miss her, yes, but I'm not sad that Laura is here and she isn't. Is that a bad way to think? I don't know. I think I'm more patient with Laura. I take my time to figure out what is wrong now instead of just snapping my cog. Also, she's a far more agreeable child and is easy most of the time. Sarah and Laura are chalk and cheese, just as well. Wouldn't have handled another one like Sarah.
2: She saved her life by being different. Their arguments continued, but eventually, Kathleen convinced Craig to stop using the monitor entirely during the day, as long as it was still consistently used every night. Craig later reported that he offered to help during the night when the monitor went off. But Kathleen would later say that he would just sleep through the alarm. However, aside from the alarm, Laura was a relaxed and good-natured baby. In December, Kathleen wrote in her diary. Getting
1: Laura to be one next year or to be fun, we'll actually get to see it. She's a fairly good-natured baby, thank goodness. It'll save her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned.
2: By January of 1998, Kathleen would take the frustrations in her marriage out on her five-month-old daughter. She wrote in her diary,
1: Very depressed with myself, angry and upset. I've done it. I've lost it with her. I yelled at her so angry that I scared her. She hasn't stopped crying. Feel so bad. I nearly purposely dropped her on the floor and left her. I was restrained enough to walk away. I feel like the worst mother in the
2: world. Scared that she'll leave me now like Sarah did. But all in all, Laura was a healthy and happy child. She was never sick except for a mild bout of the croup when she was 10 months old. And the only treatment she received that was out of the ordinary was for a second degree burn after she grabbed a spit roast at a family barbecue. There was never any concern of any abuse. Around the time Laura turned 11 months old, she started walking and becoming more independent like all toddlers do. But this also marked a time when the relationship between her parents started going rapidly downhill, again. So much so that Craig and Kathleen started sleeping in separate rooms. By the time Laura was 18 months old, Kathleen wrote her husband a letter saying that the marriage was over and that she was leaving him. Kathleen told him that although she wanted to go off by herself, she planned to take Laura and leave her somewhere she thought her daughter would be safe until she returned. She was not planning on leaving Laura with Craig. Craig would not accept this. He loved Kathleen deeply and was willing to do whatever it took to save the marriage. Kathleen demanded more time to herself to go out with her friends and to go to the gym and for Craig to be more hands-on with the bedtime routine when he got home from work. He, of course, agrees to all of this and Craig moves back into their bedroom. February 27,
1: 1999 started with Craig getting up at his usual time of six o'clock. He always got 19-month-old Laura up with him because it was his time to spend some daddy-daughter time with her. They ate breakfast together and played. Kathleen went out with her friends the night before, so she didn't get up until Craig was leaving for work at about quarter to eight. Throughout the day, Craig tried a couple of times to get Kathleen and Laura to join him. He was looking at cars he restored, and then he was going for a drive. But both times, Kathleen refused and told Craig to just go in and enjoy himself. It was always important for Craig to be home to put Laura to bed at 8.30. So when he gets home 40 minutes before this, he is surprised to find that Laura is already asleep. The following morning, again, Craig gets up with Laura at 6am. They have breakfast and play. And again, Kathleen gets up later, this time about 9 o'clock. And this isn't strange, if she was up during the night with Laura, I can understand her having a sleep in. Craig later reports that there seemed to be a strange tension in the air, and that Laura and Kathleen were almost avoiding each other. Regardless, the family organised a barbecue with friends. It wasn't until that night that Craig was able to ask Kathleen what was going on, and Kathleen admits to an incident with Laura the previous evening. Kathleen tells Craig that Laura was following around the house and acting like your normal toddler. She was complaining and repeatedly saying, mum, mum, mum. Kathleen shouts at Laura and spins around, but apparently she didn't realise how close Laura was to her and she knocks Laura over. Kathleen tells Craig that the sight of this upset her, so she calmed Laura down and put her to bed early. And this is why she was in bed earlier than normal when Craig returned home from work.
0: The next day on March 1st, 1999, it was a Monday and it was the same routine. Craig was tending to Laura in the morning while his wife slept in. Craig was getting ready for work and he heard Kathleen losing her patience with Laura. Of course, after the story he had heard the night before, he went to see what was going on and see if he needed to intervene to help out with the baby and what Craig saw was Laura in her high chair in the dining room. Kathleen was holding the toddler's hands to the surface of the high chair with one of her own hands and using the other hand to attempt to force feed Laura her breakfast. Now, Laura was screaming, she was twisting, she was turning her head to try to get out of the way. A screaming match breaks out between Craig and Kathleen, which we can see this is not an, an unusual pattern in their marriage this time it finished with kathleen pulling laura out of her high chair and putting her on the ground and telling craig he can deal with it craig took laura out of the situation by taking her into another room and he tried to calm down what would obviously be a hysterical child kathleen followed them into the room and attempted to grab laura by the arm and pull her away from craig More words were exchanged, and Kathleen left the room with Laura. Craig went ahead and got ready for work, and by the time he was ready to leave, things seemed to have calmed down. Kathleen was cleaning up the kitchen while Laura was watching TV and eating dry cereal while sitting on the sofa. So with things calmed down, he went ahead and headed to work. The day was a busy one for the full bags. Craig was at work. Kathleen took Laura to the gym for her morning class, so she left her in the child watch at the gym. After a workout, she and Laura met Craig at his work for lunch. Craig later reported that Laura was giggly and happy and active while they were playing, but when it was time to leave, she clung extra tight and didn't seem to want to go with her mother
1: this story in the book is really sweet laura draws craig a picture which he later keeps on his desk at work but just hearing the two interact with each other is just a beautiful father-daughter relationship
2: on the two and a half kilometers drive back home laura falls asleep and side note if you're an american like i am that's a one and a half mile drive kathleen carries the sleeping toddler to her bedroom taking off Laura's favorite Teletubby sandals in the hallway before laying her down on her bed. She then goes outside with a baby monitor so she can hear Laura if she happens to wake up earlier than normal. Kathleen goes outside to check on the dog, who had a habit of getting out of the yard, and then she hangs out some laundry and does some general cleaning up outside. Kathleen later reports that she heard Laura cough and splutter on the monitor, but she didn't go straight in and see if she was okay. Laura had a slight cold over the past few days, so she says she didn't think much of it at the time. According to Kathleen, about five or 10 minutes later, which, call me a cynic, but 10 minutes might be more likely here, but either way, Kathleen goes into Laura's bedroom and finds her pale and slightly blue. She picks Laura up out of the bed the toddler's skin cool to the touch, and races her out to the kitchen bench. Here, she performs CPR while frantically trying to get through to Craig at work and trying to call an ambulance. It only takes two minutes for the ambulance to arrive at the big home. They find Laura not breathing and without a pulse. The paramedics hook Laura up to an ECG monitor so they can monitor her heart. They pick up an occasional electronic pulse, so at this point there was still hope. They rush Laura to the hospital while continuing their resuscitation efforts, but it wasn't meant to be. Shortly after arriving at the hospital, the doctors announce that nineteen month old Laura Elizabeth Fulbig had died.
1: While Craig and Kathleen were still at the hospital, the police had investigated the house, which isn't unusual. It is standard procedure whenever a child has died. The detective assigned to the case was Detective Senior Constable Bernie Ryan, and they took standard photos of the different relevant areas of the home. At the hospital, understandably, both parents were distraught. Kathleen was shaking and crying hysterically. It has been reported that this is the last public showing of emotion by Kathleen for Laura. The neighbours also report later that they saw no emotion when they visited to pay their respects. However, Kathleen's gym friends do say that they saw a very upset and grieving mother in the days following Laura's death. Now there is some discussion in the book about Kathleen's behaviour at Laura's funeral. Some say she looked like someone that was trying to keep it together and get through the situation as best as she could. Others report her to be laughing and joking with friends. Kathleen's sister also reported that Kathleen said that she was glad the funeral was over and now she could get on with things. Now, I've been to funerals in the past and to wakes and I don't think it's unusual for people to be laughing and joking when they're remembering the good times with a deceased person.
0: While I was reading the this part in the book, I wondered the different stories, were they people seeing things through different filters or was it Kathleen presenting two sides of herself to different people, depending on her comfort level or possibly, if I was being cynical, depending on what she was trying to convey to these people? I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to process these different stories and figure out how much is their own filter and how much was Kathleen just honestly acted different in front of different people.
1: And that's one of the main problems here is the lack of physical or forensic evidence and what's based on people's perceptions. The autopsy of the little 19-month-old revealed three fading bruises on her legs, which I mean, as a parent, this isn't unusual, especially when you have a child who has just started walking. The coroner also found mild inflammation around the lining of Laura's heart. And again, this isn't unusual. Laura had cold and flu symptoms in the week leading up to her death. And this inflammation was consistent with the after effects of the flu. The only significant abnormality was that Laura's lungs had collapsed and they had bled slightly. And this was likely to have happened when she had stopped breathing or during the attempts to resuscitate her. And these findings were like what was found in the autopsy of Sarah. And like with Sarah, there was no obvious cause of death. Something about this made the coroner suspicious that there was something more to Laura's death. Over the course of the next couple of days, he went back and forth to Laura's body three times to examine her face closely for any signs of smothering. He checked for any slight bruising that may have developed over the days after her death, but he found nothing. Fifteen days after Laura's death, the doctor who was on duty that day contacted Detective Ryan and requested the death be treated as a murder. In his recommendation he stated that Laura had been through a battery of tests before being taken off her SIDS monitor which was only weeks before she died. He also felt there were too many coincidences like all of her children were healthy and they had died while alone in their mother's care and there was no obvious cause of death. He believed this wasn't a SIDS related death because Laura like the other children had been outside the usual age range of a SIDS death, and the syndrome hadn't been proven to be genetically linked.
0: The divorce rate among parents who have dealt with the loss of a child or even a child with a significant ongoing medical issue is understandably high, and the Fulbig's marriage was only hanging on by a thread before Laura died, so it fell apart without her. As with the other children, Kathleen resumed her life, went back to the gym, went back to work, started going out with her friends again. She did this pretty quickly. Well, Craig was almost paralyzed by his grief. Less than a month after Laura's death, Kathleen confronted Craig about his depression and his continuing grief. As before, Craig did what he could to salvage his marriage And the couple went away on a vacation in an attempt to repair the relationship. This was Craig basically trying to fake it till he made it with in regards to getting over the loss of his daughter. It wasn't enough. When they returned from their trip, Kathleen told Craig the marriage was over. She still wanted a divorce. And only six weeks after Laura's death, yes, six weeks, Kathleen packed her bags and left the family home. While all of this is happening in the Fulbig's home, the police officers assigned to the case under the direction of Detective Ryan are building their case against Kathleen. The separation between Kathleen and Craig made their job a bit easier. Craig asked Kathleen what to do with the stuff she had left behind, and she said she didn't want any of it. He could just pitch it. So as he's cleaning things out, Craig found one of Kathleen's diaries. Allie already read excerpts as we walked through how the story unfolded, but this was new to Craig. He had never read these before. This diary took uh, his small little suspicions, small things that made him uncomfortable, and they made him confront it. He began questioning what really happened to his children, and he called the detective and asked to speak to him. On May 14, 1999, Detective Ryan visited Craig at his home. Craig talked to him about the inconsistencies in Kathleen's descriptions of what happened the day Laura died. For instance, Kathleen said she took the Teletubby sandals off a sleeping Laura in the hall while carrying her inside, but when he got home from the hospital, the sandals were in the living room and not in the hall. Okay, so maybe the stress she misspoke or she forgot, but more alarming was the baby monitor. Part of Kathleen's story was that she heard Laura cough over the monitor while she was hanging up the laundry. So why did Craig find the monitor plugged in in the living room where it was usually capped? I mean, surely Kathleen didn't return it in all this chaos and confusion after she found Laura.
1: That wouldn't make sense. She's doing CPR. Oh, I better plug in the monitor again.
0: Right. I mean, she would have dropped it wherever she came in. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Most importantly, Craig gave Detective Ryan the diary. Five days later, Craig went back into the police station to give a formal statement. They ran through the deaths of the two boys and Kathleen's behavior around those. But after he covered that, Craig was due to return in another four days to finish off the statement and to talk about what happened to the girls and what he found in the diary and the inconsistencies. So why wait these four days? It's pretty basic. Craig had to take a day off of work to go in and make the initial statement, and he didn't want to miss any more work, so he scheduled to come back on a Sunday.
1: And I guess there was no rush because Craig and Kathleen were no longer together and they couldn't really sort of change each
2: other's statements to fit the story. But the night before he was due to complete his statement, Craig went to Kathleen's house. They had been talking on and off since their separation, but he hadn't yet told her that the police had been questioning him and that he had found her diary. But on this particular night, he was sitting outside of her house waiting for her to come home, because he still loved her, despite his suspicions, and he wanted to see her. When she does come home, she doesn't come home alone, but she's with a man who she's kissing. And Craig, of course, full of emotion, gets out of the car and confronts them. And this continues. Kathleen follows Craig home, and they continue their fight there. And that's when he tells her that the police think that she killed Laura. And that they now have her diary. Kathleen gets emotional. How could he even think these things? They were her children too. She lost them as well. And she says she loved them. The conversation goes to their relationship. And by the end of the night, the two decide to reconcile once again. And because of their renewed relationship... When Craig goes to the police station that following morning, he tells Detective Ryan that he wishes to change his statement.
1: The problem the police are faced with now is that there is no way they are getting anything more incriminating from Craig because he's back with his wife. And there is no way Kathleen was going to admit to being responsible for the children's deaths. So Detective Ryan got permission to fit listening devices to the Four home. The phones were tapped, which was the easy part, but to hear what was being said inside the home, it would mean that a police technician would need to physically enter the house and plant the bugs. To do this, undercover police officers placed the house under surveillance and took note of Kathleen and Craig's routines. After that, the undercover police officers trailed each of them just in case there was a situation of, I don't know, say one of them forgot their wallet and went back to get it. So with someone following them, if they happened to turn around and head back home, then the officers at the house could be warned first. But in the end, the technician broke into the house and planted the bugs without being caught. And tapes were made of every conversation that occurred in the house in July and August of 1999. On July 23rd, Kathleen was called into the police station for her formal statement. It was a long and what must have been an exhausting session that lasted over eight hours. They went into the birth, life and death of Caleb, Patrick, Sarah and Laura. Kathleen was requested to draw diagrams of each of the homes where the children died. The conversation then turned to the diary entries. Kathleen explained that the diary entries were a form of release and they were used to vent her frustrations. Which, I mean, I can understand that myself. As I said at the top of the episode, there are many of the diary entries that we won't get into today, because if we did, this would be a six-hour episode. But I would say the majority of the diary entries that have been released are Kathleen's frustrations with Craig. The fact that Craig didn't appreciate her and didn't help as much as she think he should. Now I can't speak for you guys, but there have been times where I've written long rambling letters to my husband when I've been mad at him, I'm a writer so that's what I do, and I've said some hurtful and horrible things. So if something had happened to him and then these letters were found, I would look pretty suspicious. But do they mean anything in the great scheme of things? It's just my feelings and thoughts at that one moment in time. And I may be getting ahead of myself here, but most of what I've read in Kathleen's diary could be taken as an overtired and emotional mother and wife and not a serial killer. Does that mean I think she's innocent? I'm not entirely convinced either way.
0: Definitely with her diaries, even the ones where she's taking blame for the children's death, That's not to say she directly caused it. People take on guilt for things that aren't directly their fault. You know, she said something about she got angry and that made Sarah leave her. She could have been saying that she was a bad mother, so the universe or God or something took her children away from her. But if she was a better mom, if she was a calmer mom, the universe or God or whoever would let her keep her children. So I can read a lot of those entries that way and not that she killed her children.
1: In saying that I'm responsible for the death could also mean what would have happened if I got up five minutes earlier? Could I have saved their lives?
0: Based on what Kathleen had said in her statement to the police, it was enough to get search warrants on both of the homes that the Fulbigs owned. Kathleen admitted to having one more diary that she had just started She told the detectives that all the other diaries were thrown away a few months previously. However, during the search, the police found one more diary in the wardrobe of Kathleen's bedroom. Now, the police believed that the lengthy police interview and the search warrant, this might be enough to rock the boat and get Craig and Kathleen to start talking. So they sat back and waited to see what evidence they could get from the bugs they had planted in the home. Over the next few days, they caught Kathleen doing this odd, almost role-playing thing where she was answering questions out loud that she thought might have been asked by the police in the coming weeks since her last interview. And, I don't know, this kind of stood out to me. She was heard on the tape talking to herself in an American accent. Maybe she was recreating like a courtroom or interrogation scene like she had seen on TV. Maybe she was imitating something like that. It just, that just seemed odd to me. Three days after her police interview, Craig and Kathleen started fighting. And these were heated arguments. Kathleen would accuse Craig of thinking she was responsible for the children's deaths. Craig was trying to reassure her. Craig would later explain in court that a lot of what he said that were caught on tape, these things were said because he was trying to stop the argument. He was trying to appease her. So he just told her what she wanted to hear. Or he would walk out and go to the garage to work on his cars just to avoid the conversation.
2: Now that the police had the recordings, the diaries, and the statements, basically all they needed was the go-ahead to make an arrest. A brief was sent to the Department of Public Prosecutions, so they could decide whether there was enough evidence to secure a conviction. The DPP said that there was not enough evidence to prosecute, and instead, they said that the deaths of the four children should become part of a coroner's inquest. Now, this is only a recommendation, but in the majority of cases, this recommendation is followed. However, in this case, Detective Ryan believed that they had a convincing case, So the decision was made to proceed with charging Kathleen Fulbig with the murders of her four children. And by this time, Kathleen and Craig had separated yet again and for the same reasons as before, their disagreement over Craig's grieving for the children and his desire to talk about it. I did read
1: that soon after each of the children had died, Kathleen would go around and just pack up all of their belongings. She would take all the photos down That would be hard for
2: someone grieving to just wipe them from your lives entirely. On April 19th, 2000, Detective Ryan arrested Craig Fulbig for hindering an investigation. However, once Craig amended his statement back to the original one he had made the year prior, he was released without further charges. But that same day, Kathleen was arrested and she was formally charged with the murders of Caleb Patrick, Sarah, and Laura. She was initially denied bail, but one month later, she was released on $8,000 bail. She had no more children and there was nothing to suggest that she had ever been a danger to anybody else. Now, of
1: course, there are going to be comparisons to Lindy Chamberlain in the media, both were seemingly emotionless when they faced the media, both were into their appearance when they were in public. And at least in the defense's eyes, both were grieving mothers who were being accused of killing their children. And what we will see time and time again in the media, whenever there is a case involving a baby or a very young child, there is going to be a lot of media attention, and in this case, you times that by four. And there was a genuine concern that this could very well become a trial by media, like in the Lindy Chamberlain case. There was a decision made to withhold everything no diary entries were to be released no audio recordings and no pictures of the children there was almost a complete media blackout until after the trial was complete the trial commenced april 1st 2003 with a six man and six woman jury now just an interesting side note the crown prosecutor for the case mark tedeschi qc who Australians may know because he was the prosecutor for Ivan Milat, the backpacker killer. Anyway, Tedeschi is actually the author of a book of a case we are covering in a couple of weeks' time. The Crown's case was that either she intended to kill the children after a flash of anger, resentment, or hatred against her children, or the alternative argument was that she deliberately rendered them unconscious in an attempt to put them to sleep, either so she could sleep herself or just have some time. They relied heavily on the statements given by Craig and the diaries written by Kathleen herself. One of the witnesses for the Crown was actually Kathleen's foster sister, Lee. After discussions with Detective Ryan, over time Lee believed that Kathleen could have been responsible for the deaths. For at least a year before the trial, Lee recorded every telephone conversation she had with Kathleen, and she reported it all back to Detective Ryan. During the trial, Lee testified that during a particular visit by Craig, Kathleen and Laura, who was about 17 months old at the time, they visited Lee's home for a week's holiday over Christmas of 1998. Lee noticed that her sister wasn't sleeping well and she was getting progressively moody and short-fused, which, I mean, anyone with young children can understand that. There's nothing unusual there. However, what was unusual was that on one occasion, Kathleen lost her temper with Laura when she was trying to feed her in the high chair. Being a toddler, she probably would have been much rather running around and playing. Laura decided she didn't want to eat her meal, But Kathleen got angry with her and pulled her out of the high chair by her arm, like we had seen in a previous incident. The prosecution argued that each death had 10 things in common. They all happened suddenly and unexpectedly at home. They were each discovered by their mother when she was either the only person at home or the only person awake. In four of the five incidents where Kathleen found her children not breathing, she wasn't the one that attempted CPR and, or even tried to pick up the child. Three of the children were found by Kathleen on trips to the toilet. Every one of them was during a normal check of their well-being. That the children had been found by their mother while they were still warm to touch and two still had a heartbeat. They were not found cold and dead in bed in the morning like most Sid victims were. The prosecution argued that last point, was most likely because she regretted what she had done, and that's why she raised the alarm. For the
2: defense's part, they had wanted to have a separate murder trial for each of the children. This way, each jury would not know about the deaths of the other siblings. And the fight for this delayed the trial substantially, although they did not succeed. Then there was a further delay, because the defense was searching for medical research that would offer a genetic reason for why the babies had died. And they did find something. There was new research released by the Mayo Clinic in the United States that indicated that there could be a genetic link between SIDS deaths and the serotonin gene. This could explain why four children could die within the same family. The defense also argued that there were other medical explanations for each of the children's deaths. Caleb had a floppy larynx, Patrick suffered from epilepsy, Sarah had a congested uvula and Laura had inflammation of the heart. They argued that none of the experts nor the pathologists who conducted the autopsies could find any evidence to positively support that any of these deaths were a case of suffocation. And there was no evidence of a history of physical abuse by Kathleen either. In fact, all reports showed that the children were well fed. They were meeting their milestones and were all-around happy children. Kathleen did not take the stand in her defense, but she was seen crying throughout certain parts of the trial. At one point, Kathleen was so hysterical, the judge was forced to adjourn for the day, while Kathleen was sedated in the hospital for the night. The prosecution's case lasted several weeks in comparison to the defense's, which only lasted for three days. This was mostly due to Remember that research from the Mayo Clinic that I mentioned earlier? Well, results of that research, which the defense was heavily relying on, simply was not available. And the defense's only witnesses were two medical experts and three of Kathleen's gym friends, who, under cross-examination, said that Kathleen had never confided in them about her frustrations with motherhood or about troubles in her marriage. The prosecution argued that this was an indication that they didn't really know Kathleen, at least not well enough to know what she was really capable of.
0: The jury took just six hours to reach their decision. Kathleen Fulbig was found guilty of the manslaughter of Caleb, guilty of grievous bodily harm against Patrick, guilty of the murder of Patrick, guilty of the murder of Sarah, and finally guilty of the murder of Laura. In sentencing, Kathleen Fulbig was sentenced to 40 years in jail with a non-parole period of 30 years. This sentence was appealed and reduced to a non-parole period of 25 years. Kathleen would not be eligible for parole until April 21st, 2028, when she would be 61 years old. She is currently being held at Mulawa Which is the same prison as Belinda Van Crevel, who had conspired to murder her own father, as well as the infamous Catherine Knight, who had skinned her husband and cooked his head in a pot. Due to the nature of her crimes, Kathleen is held in protective custody away from the other inmates for her own safety, and she only has limited contact with the prison guards. She is checked on every half hour, 24 hours a day as part of an ongoing suicide watch and will never have a prison job because they really do fear that she'll be attacked by the other inmates. The only time she is able to leave her cell in the isolation wing is when every other prisoner is locked in their cells.
1: One of the alternative reasons to SIDS that was put forward was the likelihood of Kathleen suffering from Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Now, I'm not going to go too much into this. Charlie and I, we talk about this at length in our episode of D.D. Blanchard, but in short, Munchausen is a syndrome where someone invents stories of disease and illness. They will sometimes harm themselves to get attention. Munchausen by proxy adds on to that where mothers or fathers for that matter, but unfortunately it is genuinely mothers, But a parent would make up an illness in their child in order to get attention for themselves in their research it has been noted that alleged sleep apnea in a child is a reoccurring theme in munchausen by proxy in that the parent would smother their child or baby and then revive them to attract attention i mean it could be argued that this could be the case with kathleen however she wasn't the one to attempt to revive the children except in that last situation when she was the only one at home. Kathleen's behaviour after each of the deaths, according to Craig, the screaming and the standing over the children's bed. However, to me, that's nothing unusual to what I would deem normal behaviour. Also, before each of the children's deaths and Patrick's epileptic episode, As you said earlier, Gillian, all children were healthy and well looked after, and there were no unusual visits to the doctors outside the normal checkups. So to me, there really isn't any evidence besides the children being warm to the touch that suggests this could be a possible Munchausen by proxy case.
0: And Kathleen didn't seem to try to milk it for attention. If anything, she wanted to stop talking about it immediately. And Munchausen's, by proxy, is often for attention. Yes. And she just wasn't seeking that. A theory we're going to go through really quickly is postpartum depression. While postpartum depression does begin in the early months after a baby's born, it can last well beyond... Past the first and even second year, especially if it's untreated. So, Kathleen having an 18 month old doesn't mean she wasn't still suffering from postpartum depression. We're bringing this theory up not so much because we believe it, but because there's a myth involved here that we want to dispel. A lot of women hesitate to seek help for their postpartum depression because they don't want people to think they're going to harm their own children. Let's dispel that now. The person at the greatest risk of harm due to postpartum depression is the woman herself. The cases where the child is harmed, or children, like in the Andrea Yates case, postpartum psychosis is what's behind it. Kathleen obviously was not having a psychotic event during any of the deaths of her children, so that wouldn't apply. You can't tell if someone is suffering from postpartum depression from the outside. So it's fully possible that Kathleen was suffering from postpartum depression, but the risk to her children was very, very low. It would have been more likely she would have had a risk to herself. Suicide is a serious concern with postpartum depression. So we bring up this theory less for Kathleen's sake and more for the sake of any of our listeners out there who are dealing with postpartum depression and are afraid of that stigma Or that fear that someone will view you as a lesser mother or a dangerous mother because you're suffering with this. Because that is absolutely not true. And you deserve to be happy. And you deserve to get the help you need. Yes. Another theory about what may have attributed to Kathleen's actions was that due to her dysfunctional infancy, it affected her ability to form attachment. You know I don't like to diagnose people since, one, I'm completely unqualified to do so, but even if I was qualified, it's irresponsible to diagnose people who I've never met. In this case, I'm willing to go as far as to say that it wouldn't be outside reason to suspect that a child with a similar upbringing as Kathleen's would be dealing with something like this, something that we call reactive attachment disorder. And this is considered rare. It's a serious condition in which an infant or a young child, they don't establish healthy attachments with either parents or caregivers. Reactive attachment disorder can develop if the child's basic needs are not met. Comfort, affection, nurturing... And loving, stable attachments with others aren't being established in their early years. I mean, we're really talking about making the right brain pathways for this. Without attachment, without having that connection to someone to love them unconditionally and to protect them, the child doesn't learn to form that bond. Not just they don't learn to form it with their parents. They don't learn to form it with anyone. So just to quickly bullet point... What in Kathleen's early life made this pop into my head? One, there were allegations of neglect in the home with both of her parents. So even before the traumatic incident when she was 18 months old, it's possible she was being neglected. At 18 months, her mother left, her father placed her with a friend of his, and then her mother died and her father went to jail. And then she went to relatives Then she spent some time as a young toddler in a group home for children. Group homes can be run very well. However, it's very difficult to avoid that rotation of caregivers, making it hard for the young child to really make a bond with a one or two caregivers. And there are allegations of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse in the time she was in care before she moved in with this long-term home. And she did not have a stable-loving, non-neglectful home until she was three years old. When she had children, Kathleen was seen by some as narcissistic, and based on both Craig's testimony and Kathleen's diaries, she seemed more interested in her own appearance and being the center of attention, especially when it came to her husband, and even over that of her own children. And then her diaries... They showed that she didn't really have that maternal instinct or attachment to her children. She seemed surprised when she actually felt it for her fourth baby. Now, is this because she's just a terrible person, or is it possible she just never learned how to make these connections? Each time she had a child, she went in with the best intentions, but when they were born, reality set in, and she didn't feel what she thought she was supposed to be feeling towards them. Also, is it possible that this little person who needed attention and protection came across as a challenge to her and her role in Craig's life? When Craig took Laura's, quote, side in the power struggle that morning that she died, was that the last straw? Was Kathleen perceiving this as Craig choosing his bond with Laura over her? Now, I know my fellow armchair psychologists out there are probably thinking this sounds a lot like borderline personality disorder, and there are some people out there who wonder if reactive attachment disorder, not treated in childhood, manifests into what we recognize as borderline personality disorder in adults, and I'll let everyone do their own reading on that. Of course, we can't diagnose her. But one thing that's always important to Allie and I, and I know from listening to Court Junkie faithfully, that it's important to Jillian as well, that we explore the why and the how behind these things and not just look at what happened. So what in Kathleen's past would have led her to murder her children if that is what happened? That might be the most important part of the story because it would help us understand how we can protect others. If we aggressively treated reactive attachment disorder, and possibly even made it the norm to screen kids who had been removed from their homes under the suspicion of neglect for reactive attachment disorder so that they could get treatment, we might be able to prevent this in the future.
1: So what happened here? There are two arguments that are put forth. Were the jury correct? Did Kathleen kill all of her children? Or is she a victim of a flawed judicial system? Is she innocent? Is she a grieving mother that is behind bars, living out this every day of her life? The thing is, Charlie, you and I talked about this earlier when we started researching. All the discussion and articles out there argues Kathleen either killed all of her children or none of her children. Could it be possible that that isn't the case here? Could Kathleen be
2: responsible for maybe only one or two of these deaths? You know, anything is obviously possible. We were not there. But for me, you know, there's no forensic pathology evidence at all. There was really no signs of murder. But what stood out the most to me was her own words from those diary entries. And I know, you know, earlier, I think Charlie, you were saying that, you know, we can't really judge somebody by their words or like we don't know what she meant. She could have meant a number of things. But there were a few quotes in particular from the diary entries that are just very difficult for me to overlook. Um, You know, one of the quotes when she's talking about Sarah, she says she's a fairly good natured baby. Thank goodness. It saved her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned she saved her life by being different. Um, And another one she says, obviously, I'm my father's daughter. And then when she was trying for her fourth child, she writes, But I think losing my temper stage and being frustrated with everything has passed. I now just let things happen and go with the flow. An attitude I should have had with all of my children. If given the chance, I'll have it with the next one. So I don't know. To think that she's innocent of this, there's just a lot of, lot of things you need to reconcile you know it's like a a big coincidence that she suffered this awful childhood and this upbringing and that she didn't you know have any effects from that and then you know she's she is saying these things that are you know quote unquote kind of damning in her diary entries um i, I don't know what what do you guys think about the diary entries in particular
0: well i know when I first started looking at it I the first time I read the diary entries I was like why are we discussing this <laughs> like why is this an possible wrongful conviction clearly she did it so then I started reading I I don't want to call them the apologist sites the um the articles that have been put out by people who do believe she was wrongfully convicted and it was interesting it opened my mind a little bit however I do feel like the things she said specifically about her first daughter in hindsight I don't see how even, it takes a lot of mental gymnastics for me to see that as anything other than her saying she murdered her. I have a really hard time with that. Now, is it possible that the first two boys died of natural causes or some type of underlying problem that we didn't know about? And that made her further mental stability questionable? And then she had a harder time coping and then did kill the third one i do think that's possible i have, i i'm kind of of two minds in this do i think she killed at least some of her children yes do i think they have enough evidence to convict her i don't know and and
1: that's and that's what i come back to and that's the reasonable doubt one of the things that stands out for me in this case is that there were no prior incidences of physical abuse of any kind And the only verbal abuse is kathleen yelling at her children which i mean she was sleep deprived and we're only relying on craig's recollection of events the children were well looked after but i mean i do have that grain of doubt as well what are the odds that all of her children would die in similar ways and kathleen just happens to be the one that finds them basically within minutes of them stopping breathing I don't know. Look, if I was on the jury, I don't know if I could convict her, especially in the case of Caleb and possibly Patrick's first episode where he had the fit. I think there are reasonable explanations of why Caleb died and possibly Patrick that does create that reasonable doubt for me.
2: And here's my question too, do you think that the outcome would have been different if, as the defense had wanted, she had been tried separately for each child. So if the juries in each trial did not know about the other children and they just went based on the one child that she was being tried for at the time, um, would she still have been found guilty? Was, is there enough evidence? So I think the answer to that question is important because that means that the fact that it was four children of hers is a fact that's very hard to overlook.
1: I think I definitely agree on that with, as far as Caleb and Patrick goes, but with the girls, I find it hard how they would separate the deaths of the other children and the girls with just the diary entries alone, because she talks about them dying. So would they have then had to have left the diary entries
2: out? And that plays a big role in the story. Right. So with the diary entries and then the knowledge that the siblings had died, is that enough?
0: I do think that she was convicted because there were four.
2: That's a huge hurdle to
0: overcome that this woman, this poor woman just happened to have four children die of unexplained. That could be explained by smothering, but maybe it could be explained by something else we don't know. That's a huge hurdle. And I think that there were four of them And the diary entries. I don't think Craig's testimony was that persuasive. I don't think whatever she said on those those recordings was really, I think it's the diary and that there were four of them. And if that's enough, I, I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. It is a
2: complicated case. It's hard to say for sure. One way or the other. And then to complicate things even further, um, the story actually does not end there. In June, 2015, a petition was sent to the new South Wales governor asking for a judicial review The legal team behind the petition said that they believe the evidence that the jury heard was flawed and that there could be other explanations for the children's deaths. And I want to read a little bit of it. So the petition essentially says that the prosecution's claim at trial that three or more unexpected deaths from natural causes in a family had never occurred before was incorrect. And in this petition, they included a report by a British statistician who said that the jury was misled about this. They cite an American study done in 1987 that included two different families where four babies had died of SIDS and related conditions. And there were later British and Norwegian studies of SIDS where a number of families had three babies die. And the grand conclusion of these studies was that babies born into families where one child had already died of SIDS were up to 10 times more likely to become SIDS victims themselves. So I thought that was pretty interesting. They also said that too much weight was placed on Kathleen's diary entries and the medical evidence the prosecution relied on at trial was faulty in regard to what we now know about SIDS. And on top of all of that, they brought up that there was no physical or forensic evidence to show that the children were even murdered at all. So, this judicial review may be Kathleen's only chance of having these convictions dismissed if she is, in fact, innocent.
0: I think one thing, you know, we're talking about SIDS, one thing that struck me is that all of her children were outside of the, you know, highest risk for SIDS, but the older ones were well outside the risk. So I would think if it was a natural cause, I know sometimes SIDS becomes a catch-all diagnosis of we can't really figure out what else it is, but I think when a kid is getting 10, 11, 12 months and older, there really needs to be, I don't know what else they could do to find out what is going on, but it it feels like SIDS wouldn't really be an explanation. And that's how I
1: feel with Caleb, yes, he was younger than the normal Sid's time frame, but a relation of mine did lose a child to Sid's at two weeks. It does happen. With Patrick, he did have the epilepsy. That could be an expl- that could be a very reasonable explanation with why he died. But with the girls, as you said, Charlie, they are well above the normal Sid's age group. Any case involving children is going to be a hard episode to research, as well as all of you listening, but we're timesing that by four here. It's one that I don't think any of us are going to forget about in any hurry. But if anything happens with a potential judicial review, we will update you all in a future episode. So thanks again to Gillian for helping us out today. Where can people find you?
2: Thank you. You can find Court Junkie on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts from. You can join my Facebook discussion group by going to courtjunkie.com slash Facebook. And both Allie and Charlie are also a part of that group. And so you can talk to all of us. Or you can find me on Twitter at Court Junkie Pod and our housekeeping firstly the shout outs
1: thank you to our fabulous patrons this week to diane from history goes bump podcast andrea m kimberly k and elizabeth l and we've been getting so many fabulous five-star reviews lately and we really appreciate it so this week thank you to jeremy from the judge and jeremy podcast milk cowbird sunflower tx Shep N25 and T. Gene Banks24. Now we have a website, insightpod.com. You can listen to all our episodes there, read our show notes, and access some of our research. As I said at the top of the episode, I will get the diary entries of Kathleen up on the website, hopefully, when the episode airs or within a few days after that. If you like listening to us and can help, please consider becoming a patron. For less than the cost of my beloved coffee, you can access our monthly bonus episode, as well as a bunch of other rewards. Just head on over to patreon.com slash for more information on how to sign up. We also have a PayPal for a one off donation and links to our Patreon and PayPal are all on our website. If you can't become a patron, you can still show your support through iTunes or your favourite podcast app by rating, reviewing and subscribing. It helps bump us up the charts and helps bring more ears to the podcast. You can contact us with your episode suggestions, feedback or just for a chat via Facebook, like the page and follow the discussion group and Instagram at InsightPod, Twitter at InsightfulPod or you can email us, insightfulpod at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone, and thanks again to Gillian. We will see you next
0: week.